much smaller than the moon, which is smaller than Earth, which is much smaller than the sun, which is much smaller than our galaxy, which is much smaller than the universe, which is much smaller than God. And yet 2,000 years ago, God still came as man. Teaching team member Bob Cargo finishes his series, Four Psalms for You for Today, with this message entitled Advent, The Majesty of God in Christ, which covers Psalm 8. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Good morning. Glad that all of you are here today. I'm going to walk in this direction because I've been told I always preach over there and never over here. So I'm going to start over here. So at least I'll start with recognizing you people on this side. Okay. Now we'll see you later. I'm going to go over here. I have no idea why I do that, but so I say, you always go right, never left. I don't know what's up with that. Anyway, hey, uh, Christmas is only five days away. That's crazy, isn't it? Five days away. I can't believe it's here already. Uh, let me ask you this question. As you think about sort of the Christmas holidays for your experience uh, normally, if you had to choose one word that describes what the Christmas holidays usually feel like to you, uh, what would the word be? My, my bet is for a lot of the ladies in this room, the word would be busy. Okay, uh, or the word uh, stressed. Uh, maybe for some people who are going through a period of loss, the, the word is sad. Every Christmas reminds you, as Alan alluded to, uh, those that are not with you now. Maybe if you're a workaholic, uh, the Christmas season is boring because it's socially unacceptable to keep working and they make you stop and you get bored. Now, I don't know what word you would use to describe how you usually feel uh, during the holiday season, but I wonder how many of us would honestly say it feels more spiritual. I wonder how many of us could say, yeah, it, it's a spiritual experience for this, for me. And I think all of us, though, if we have any spiritual inclination whatsoever, will have to say we would yearn for it to be a truly, deeply spiritual experience. It may still be those other things, okay? may still be a little bit stressful, may be very busy, can't get, can't, can't get around those things. But the spirituality can overcome the dysfunctionality somehow. We would like for it, it to be spiritual. Uh, what is Christmas deeply, deeply, truly about? I want to define it in a way that uh, might surprise you. The opening line of one of the most important books in the history of Christianity starts with this line. It says, all wisdom, that is all true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Now that's a wise insight. All wisdom, that is all true and sound wisdom, consists of these two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. What I want to say today is if we understand the birth of Jesus, if we understand the incarnation of God the Son, it will give us this kind of wisdom. We will start to understand who we are, and we will start to understand who God is. It's all about the incarnation of Jesus. Today we want to look at a classic Christmas text, and though it's a classic Christmas text, I don't know that I've heard many sermons out of this text, and I never preached a Christmas message out of this text before. But this is going to tell us not only about the incarnation of Jesus. It's going to tell us who God is and it's going to tell us who we are. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Psalm chapter 8. If you have a Bible, Psalm 8. You'll sign an insert in your bulletin, too, that will give you the outline of today's message. And even if you're not going to write things down, you may want to get that out so that you can follow along with, it, with me. 
The second panel of this insert also gives you the scripture that we're going to use today out of the New King James Version. And while you're turning, what you see here on the screen is alluding to this. For me, this is the fourth sermon in a row that I've preached to you all out of the book of Psalms. And even though it wasn't begun as a series, those who are in control of such things here at Perimeter are going to bind this together in a series out of Psalms called Hearts Set Right. That's what the book of Psalms is about. That's why we, many of us, use the Psalms so much in our devotional life. It sets our hearts right again. So this little four series of sermons will be about hearts set right, four sermons for you for today. And those sermons will be about the topics of worship and temptation, thankfulness, and the advent of Jesus. That's today. What does the word advent really mean? A lot of churchgoers don't even know what it means. The word advent means arrival or appearance or visit. So Advent is about the arrival of Jesus, the appearance of Jesus, the visit of Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Please stand with me as we read Psalm 8. In honor of God's word, Psalm 8. And I'll be reading from the New King James Version. And uh, we'll make a few comments about verse 1 and then read through the rest of the passage. The psalmist here, King David, says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. Now, when he says, O Lord, our Lord, that sounds repetitive, but it's not. In the Hebrew, the first word, Lord, is the word Yahweh. It's the name of God that God gave himself when he called Moses. The second word, Lord, is the word Adonai. It's the word that means master. So we could translate this, O Yahweh, our master, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. This psalm ends with the very same verse it begins with. And so we know this psalm is about what? It's about the glory of God. That's what it's about. Verse 2, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you've ordained strength because of your enemies. You may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the sun and the moons, the, the sun, the moon and the stars, rather, which you've ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man, that you even visit him? For you've made him a little lower than the angels or the heavenly beings, and you've crowned him with what? With glory and honor. You've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Yahweh, our Adonai, how excellent, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O oh Lord, we ask you today during this time, give us hearts to listen. Forgive the sins of this preacher. Show us Jesus and show us ourselves. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. The title of this uh, message today is Advent, the Majesty of God in Christ. As I've already alluded to, we're going to talk about two things today that this psalm shows us about ourselves as mankind, and this shows us who Jesus is as the Son of Man. And we're going to see here that the majesty of God is especially exemplified, supremely exemplified, where? In the work and person of Jesus Christ. We see the glory of God in the incarnation. We see the glory of God in the work of Jesus to restore all things to be as they should be. And we see the glory of Jesus in the fact that for those of us who put our faith in him, he will make us fully redeemed, fully restored image bearers, all for the majesty of Jesus. With those things being 
said, let's dig in. The first main part of today's message is this. This psalm tells us about ourselves, that is, mankind. What does it tell us about us? This psalm tells us three things. First of all, this psalm tells us about our smallness, our smallness. Look at verses 1 through 4. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent or majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And yet out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants you've ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you've ordained, what's man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you would visit him? Remember when I was in middle school, I went to a retreat out in the wilderness of Alabama. Alabama has a lot of wilderness. Not quite as much as Mississippi, but there's a lot of it in Alabama. And so we went out to this retreat place out in the, sort of the rural Alabama, and I was able to get away from the big city lights of Gadsden, you know? And uh, one, I don't remember what happened to the camp, but there was some time, I guess, we were supposed to go out alone and pray and think or whatever. And so I went out, and it was a beautiful, clear night, and the stars were shining very brightly. And I laid down on the grass, and I looked up, and sort of all my science classes and my Bible classes converged, so to speak. And I looked up at the stars, and I just felt so small. I thought about how huge our solar system is. And how huge just our one galaxy is. And then how huge the whole created universe is. And I thought that I'm just this one little person out of billions of people on the face of this earth. And this earth is like a grain of sand in relation to the whole universe. And I had this existential experience of feeling so small. Probably you've had that kind of experience as well as sometime, haven't you? to look up at the stars and think about the universe and realize just how small we are. You know, this passage talks about God creating this universe as the work of his fingers. Now, I think the implication is this, to create this whole universe bigger than we can imagine. He did not have to use the strength of his legs and of his back. To create this whole universe, he did not have to use the strength of his arms. To create this whole universe, he didn't even have to use the strength of his whole hands. To create this universe, he was just messing around with his fingers. So the point of this psalm is this. When we think how big creation is, we feel very small. But when we think about how big God is, we feel very, very small. He starts here talking about our smallness. Everything in these first three verses point to our smallness. It talks about the majesty of God over all the earth, and we don't have that majesty talks about how God has ordained his praise through babes and nursing infants. And we think, well, how, how could that be? Well, how do every one of us start off life? We start off life as babes and nursing infants. And that's the story of the gospel, isn't it? Jesus said, for us to come into the kingdom, we have to see ourselves as children. We have to be teachable. We have to realize and embrace our smallness if God's strength is ever going to be displayed in and through us. So the psalm starts off describing our smallness. From there, though, the psalm goes on to talk about our greatness. Look at verses 5 through 8, our greatness. It says here in Psalm 5, And yet you have made him a little lower than the angels, that is, the heavenly beings. You've crowned him with glory and honor. 
You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. Now, this is obviously an allusion to Genesis 1 and 2. God creates mankind, and he creates us as the pinnacle of his creation. We alone are made in his image. And we alone being made in his image means that we're the caretakers of everything else he made. We're the gardeners in his garden. There's nothing else in all of creation like us. As we're going to see in a few moments, yes, the moral image of God in us is deeply marred. But the essential and natural image of God in us, our rationality, our spirituality, our immortality that we will exist and live forever in one place or another, that has never changed. And there is nothing else in all of creation like that. It says here, yes, we are small and we feel small, but in fact, there is a greatness about us that God has given to us. You know, even after becoming a minister, there have been a, a couple of different times in my life in which I've deeply questioned the truth of Christianity. And I've had to go back to square one and start from the foundation. Why do I believe what I believe? Is it believable? And in these chapters, I've found it sometimes true that starting with who God is is too out there. So I start with who we are as human beings. What do we know of ourselves? And what I come back to over and over again is that there is no worldview that explains both the majesty of who we are as human beings and the brokenness of who we are, like the Judeo-Christian view of human beings. We are made in God's image. And there's no other viewpoint that is so majestic. And there's no other viewpoint other than Christianity that holds out the hope of redemption by grace like we do. It all totally makes sense. And so I come back and I believe it again and again. Now, right now, the greatness of who we are as human beings is veiled a little bit. But after we die, after this life is over and the next one begins... It will be apparent to everyone how great it is, how weighty it is, how significant it is, one, in one direction or the other, to be made in the image of God. I like how C.S. Lewis put it in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. Listen to his words. He said, it's a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. That is, if this was a glorified saint in the new heavens and the new earth. Or else, he would be a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if, if at all, only in a nightmare. If it's a person who's been cast away from all that is good. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Wow. This psalm tells us about our smallness, but this psalm tells us about our greatness. It is an unbelievable thing to be made in the image of God. Thirdly, this psalm also tells us about our brokenness, our smallness, our greatness, and then thirdly, our brokenness. You're going to see on the screen here a picture of the Roman Colosseum. This is a, um, an amazing thing to see in person. Isn't it glorious? And isn't it in ruins? <laughs> All at the same time. 
it harkens back to a time of glory. Amazing that at this time of the history of mankind, this kind of thing could be built. And yet now in ruins. One of our previous pastors here named Matt Ballard used to often like to describe that we as human beings, this is who we are. We are glorious ruins. What an insightful thing to say. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that it's true. Look around the world at all the horrible things we see in our world. We yearn for something that's good and true and beautiful. We look at the world and we see that we're broken. Look what's going on these days in our nation. We yearn for something that's good and true and wonderful and beautiful. But we are so very broken. We look at our extended families. If we're honest, we look at our own hearts. And if I look at my heart, I see these two things. A yearning for what is good and true and beautiful. I know that I'm made for greatness and goodness. But I look at my heart and what do I see? I see that I am so very broken. That's my story. That's your story. Smallness, greatness, but brokenness. Where do we see the idea of brokenness in Psalm 8? We see it implicitly in verse 4. In verse 4, David says, What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him? Here's the idea. We are so very broken that to be fixed, it required God himself to come visit us. That's the idea. This word here, visit, this is the key word of the whole psalm. We can't understand Psalm 8 unless we understand this word. The King James translates it, visit. Most of our more modern translations translate it to care for. What is man that you would care for him? Now, why the difference? Well, the Hebrew word here is the word pakad. And the word pakad is this kind of idea. Follow with me, track with me. It's the idea of a superior visiting a subordinate. And the position of that subordinate is altered because of that visit, either for bad or for good. Occasionally, the word pakad is is used in the sense of God visiting someone to bring judgment. But mostly, it's the idea that he shows up to visit in order to give aid. He shows up to visit to care for someone. And that's the idea of Pekah. Let me give you a few examples that the idea would be crystallized in your mind. In the book of Genesis, God has given a promise to Abraham and his wife Sarah that they're going to conceive and have a child of promise. And then they get old, far past the age of childbearing. But it says in Genesis 21, the Lord was gracious to Sarah. And the word gracious is the word Pekah. He visited her to care for her. At the end of the, book, of the book of Genesis, we see Joseph talking to his brothers. They are old men by this point. And Joseph says to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will someday come to your aid. And that word, come to your aid, is the word pakad. He will visit you to care for you. The prophet Jeremiah one time prayed, Oh Lord, remember me and care for me. The word pakad, come to my aid. And then in the story of Ruth and Boaz... It says, when in Moab, Ruth heard that the Lord had come to the aid of his people, Israel. Just the word pakad. Now, what's the point here? The point is this. The yes, we are small and yes, we are great, but we are so broken that it required the visit of God himself to come and take care of us. He couldn't send an angel. He couldn't just send a prophet. He had to come himself And Christmas is the story of when God showed up himself to give us aid. It's the story of when God showed up himself to care about us and care for us. That's how broken we've been. 
that leads us to the next part of our message. Not only do we find here what's true about us, that we're small, we're great, we're broken. This psalm also tells us what is true of Jesus. It tells us about Jesus, the Son of Man. Follow with me as we look at this. What has happened here in his first advent? Well, what did he come to do in his first arrival, in his first appearing? Didn't he come to give us aid? Didn't he come to care for us? Didn't he come in order to do good to us? Yes, that's what's happened. Now, how did he give us aid? How did he care for us? He has done it through the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel shows us how he cares for us. In the incarnation, Jesus became one of us. In his life, he accomplished perfect obedience for us. In his death, he secured redemption for us. And in his resurrection, he secured eternal life for us. Here is the gospel in Psalm chapter 8. What is man that you would visit him, to be one of him, to live for him, to die for him, to be raised for him? And here is how he has done us good. He has done us good and cared for us through the good news of the gospel. One very important observation about this psalm. This psalm is indeed about our being people of glory, our being redeemed image bearers, and one day having the glory that we were created to have in the beginning. But this psalm is not primarily about us at all. This psalm is primarily about the majesty of Jesus. It's the idea that the glory and the majesty of God Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And how is that majesty seen? It is seen primarily through Jesus, through who he is and what he has done. It is seen through his incarnation. It is seen through his death. It is seen through his resurrection. It is seen, in fact, that it is Jesus who will take us to be what God made us to be in the first place. Here's the essence of Psalm 8. Don't miss it, please. Jesus is who we were made to be. Jesus is who we were made to be, and we will only be what we were made to be by faith in him. That's the message of Psalm 8. Let me explain it this way, and I'll recommend a book to you. It's by a guy named Patrick Reardon. It's called Christ in the Psalms. If you like the Psalms, you need to get this book. In, about Psalm 8, Patrick Reardon says this, Christ is no afterthought. He is the original meaning of humanity. Christ is what God had in mind when he reached down and formed the very first lump of mud into a man. In the words of St. Nicholas Cavasilas, he says, it was towards Christ that man's mind and desire were oriented, that is, when we were first made. We were given a mind that we might know Christ and a desire that we might run to Christ and memory that we might remember Christ. Because even at the time of creation, it was he who was the archetype. The mystery of the incarnation is the theme of Psalm 8. Christ is the reason for our singing out, O Lord, our Lord, how sublime is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Psalm 8 is about Jesus. Out of the mouth of babes, God has established strength. Through babes, God has silenced his enemies. It was the baby Jesus that has silenced the enemies of God. God has put all things under the feet of mankind to a bit, but God has put all things under the feet of the Son of Man, and he is the one who has given a reign over everything. And when you read Psalm 8 as being around about Jesus, 
your eyes will be opened and you'll understand it for maybe the very first time. Here's the idea. We blew it as image bearers. God put us in the garden and we blew it. But Jesus showed up to be the perfect image bearer, the perfect human image bearer. And it's the greatest thing that's ever happened in the history of mankind. I love the words of one scholar who said this, the greatest favor ever shown to the human race and the greatest honor ever bestowed on human nature was the honor and favor of the incarnation. Amazing that he would be one of us, that he would not be ashamed to call us brothers. It's the biggest compliment that could ever happen. The psalm basically says, there is a pathway to our glory. God has created us in glory. He is redeeming us for an ultimate glory. But our pathway to glory has only come through the humiliation of Jesus and then the glory of Jesus. Our pathway to glory has only come because God humbled himself to become a man. And then that man became so obedient to his father that he was willing to go and die a gruesome death upon a cross And according to Philippians 2, because Jesus humbled himself to the point of the cross, God has glorified him and given him a name that is above every name. That's the name of Jesus every knee would bow. At the name of Jesus, every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord. And our pathway to glory is only through the glory of Jesus because he put himself on the cross. That is the message of our glory. This psalm tells us, about Jesus and his first advent. He came to visit us and care for us and he was willing to go to a bloody cross to take care of our needs. The first advent of Jesus. This psalm is also not only about the first advent of Jesus, this psalm tells us about the second advent of Jesus. You see, this, in this psalm, like in so many places of the Old Testament, the first advent of Jesus and the second advent of Jesus get all rolled up into one passage. There's often not a clear distinction between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus when these prophecies are talked about. And that's what's happening here. It's all, in a sense, one big event that takes place over thousands of years, at least 2,000, maybe just 2,000, maybe more. We don't know. But the idea is this, that what Jesus began in his first advent, he will complete in his second advent. Jesus secured our restoration to glory in the first advent. He will complete our restoration to glory in the second advent. And this is his work, that we would be who God made us to be because he has come to do the work for us. And someday he'll bring it to completion. What's going to happen when Jesus comes back again? What's going to happen to us? 1 John chapter 3 describes it. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. He got no respect, we get no respect. Beloved, he says, we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he what? When he appears, when he advents, when he arrives, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We will receive glory because we live in his glory. But there's a difference. Our glory is like the glory of the moon. You know, the the moon has no power of luminosity by itself, does it? The moon's light is simply a reflection of the sun's light. And that is like our glory now, and that will be like our glory in heaven, simply a reflection of the glory of Jesus. 
But the glory of Jesus is different. The glory of Jesus is like the glory in the shining of the sun, S-U-N. It is as if there is a second sun created, just like the first, though Jesus was not created. That's not what I'm saying. But it's the idea that the Father, Son, and the Spirit, our triune God, all shine with equal glory. And we have glory simply because he has glory. And especially the glory of Jesus is given to us because it was Jesus who humbled himself. It was Jesus that went to the cross. It was Jesus who's been raised from the dead. And therefore, the Father has decided to give him a name that is above every name. And the pathway to glory for us is what? It's through the glory of the Father seen in Jesus. I want to bring this sermon to a close. Let's, let's land the plane, but I want to do two things as I land the plane. I want to underscore the main idea of this sermon. And secondly, I want to tell you, so what? Uh, what difference should this make tomorrow in the way you live your life? First of all, let, let me underscore this. Is Psalm 8 really about Jesus or am I just making this up because I like the gospel so much? Is it really about Jesus? I mean, is the glory of God ultimately seen in the face of Jesus? Is our glory only going to come about through putting our faith in this glorified Savior? Is it really all true? Three passages, I'm not going to say really much of anything about these three passages, but I want you to look for these same themes that I've been talking about. Look for these themes in these three passages. Now, I know I'm asking you to think, and about half of you come here ready to do that, and the other half don't, so I'm, I'm going to challenge you to really think while I read these passages and connect the dots. First of all, it's Hebrews 2, and Hebrews 2 explicitly says this Psalm 8 is about Jesus. Let's see what it says. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we're speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him and visit him? You made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under his feet, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. That is, at present, it doesn't seem like everything is really subject to the authority of human beings. But we do see Jesus, he says, who was made a little while lower than the angels. Added, he became one of us. And he is now crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In, many, in bringing many sons to what? Many sons to glory. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect. How? Through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Wow, the incarnation. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them what? To call them brothers. Creation, fall, incarnation, redemption, and glory. Do you see the pattern? Creation, fall, incarnation, redemption, glory. This is our story of glory, as Randy often talks about. Second passage, John 1, verses 1 through 4 and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. This is about creation. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and life, and the life was the what? The light, the luminosity of men. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld what? We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace 
and truth. And then lastly, 2 Corinthians 4 talks about the glory of God seen in the face of Jesus. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. The Lordship of Jesus is the gospel. And we preach ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, alluding to creation, made his light shine in our hearts. We are recreated to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And where is that glory of God seen? It is seen in the face of Christ. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And here's what Psalm 8 is about. The majesty of God is seen most clearly in the work and in the person of Jesus. You can be what God created you to be because Jesus became what you were supposed to be. Let me say that again. You and I can be someday when Jesus comes back what God created us to be because Jesus became what God created us to be. When we had blown it as image bearers, he became that perfect image bearer, the new humanity. And then when we put our faith in him, we were joined together with Christ and we become the new humanity under Jesus. It all started with him. He became mankind for us. And that's the story that we see here in this psalm. Now, let me close with this. Close with the application of this whole thing. What difference can this make for your life tomorrow? (laughs) Is this going to make a difference in the way you live life, in the way you think, and in what you do? I sure hope it does. Three points of application. The first is this, give glory to Jesus. Give glory to Jesus. This psalm is a call to be a worshiper of Jesus. Your life, my friend, is not about you. My life is not about me. Your life is about Jesus, so give glory to Jesus. This church is not about any one of us here, and this church is not about all of us put together. This church is about the glory of Jesus. So my first application is actively in your life, give glory to Jesus, the name above all names. Secondly is this, repent and believe the good news. Jesus has appeared and will appear again for you if you repent and believe. Maybe you've never really heard the gospel explained like this. Maybe you've never heard about his life and death and resurrection. Maybe you've never heard about his intention to make all things right and to make you what you were created to be. How should you respond? I hope that today you surrender to Christ. That's what repentance is. Your Lord, I'm not. I hope you believe in him and put your faith in his cross. That will change your life forever. And whether you've understood it before or not, I hope that today you do it. And then I also want to say, believers, keep repenting and keep believing. The gospel is to be central in your life. Live a gospel-centered life and practice a gospel-centered obedience because your life exists for the glory of Jesus. And then lastly, my third application is this. Join with Christ as a co-laborer in the restoration and flourishing of your own life of our city of Atlanta, and of all things. What an amazing thing to think about. We are co-laborers with Christ in making everything right again. God has a plan to restore the world to be what he created it to be in the first place, and even better. And we get to work alongside him in doing that. 
That is the message of this psalm. Now, in the last few years, we've preached on these themes of the flourishing of mankind and our being partners with God. We've preached about a number of different times. Just to remind you, if you want to go back and check those out, a series called Restoration Hardware in 2009, Vocation in 2009 and 10, The Kingdom Story in 2007, The Transformative Power of the Cross in 2012, Every Square Inch in 2013, What Do You Work For in 2013, and a series called Calling in 2014. And then there were some standalone sermons all in 2014 that hit these themes. A theology of place that where you live matters, making much of Jesus And why do good in the name of Jesus? Hope you'll go back and check those out. Because this idea of partnering with God is hugely transformative to your life once you really get it. Here's the idea of today's message. Let me close with this. You were made to be an image bearer. You were redeemed so that one day you would be a perfected image bearer. But being an image bearer right now who is in the process of being redeemed and being restored can mean this, that every day your work, your worship, and your witness can be used of God to bring a flourishing to your own heart, to the city of Atlanta, and to the whole world. Now, I don't know if you're looking for a reason to live. I don't know if you're looking for a reason to believe that when you go to work tomorrow, it will matter forever. But I've just given you that reason. As an image bearer, God wants your work, your worship, your witness to contribute to the flourishing and restoration of your heart, to the flourishing of our whole city. I hope you pray for Atlanta and the flourishing of the whole world. Church, be what God has called you to be. Work with Jesus for the glory of Jesus. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, the name of Jesus in all the earth. Let's pray as we close. Oh, Lord Jesus, we do give you praise. Thank you that it's at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Oh, Lord, you came to redeem us and you came as a baby to redeem us. And it's through a baby that you will silence your enemies, that your strength will be seen, the baby Jesus. You have made Jesus the name that is above every name. And you've put under Jesus all of your creation, every bit of it. And we thank you. We thank you, we praise you that you have made him the one to reign and rule over all of creation so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, the name of Jesus, every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, the name of Jesus in all the earth. We pray it all in our Savior's name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.